Hello and welcome to the Exploring Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Krim. And on this podcast, we explore the ideas, the strategies, the companies that are shaping the future of healthcare so that we can be uh, more educated and we can implement these strategies and really affect real change in the industry. And on this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Shanta Nunundi, who serves as the Chief Medical Officer for Accolade. He's a primary care physician in the greater Washington, D.C. area, serves as a senior advisor to the World Bank, and a lecturer in health policy at George Washington University Milken Institute for Public Health. Uh, prior to his role at Accolade, um, he was a senior health specialist at the World Bank Group, director of the Human Diagnosis Project, managing director for clinical innovation at Evelyn Health, and most recently he's the author of the book Care After COVID, uh, where he lays out a framework and he lays out a vision of the way that healthcare can be, and really the way that healthcare is headed. It was a very helpful conversation for me. Uh, you'll, you'll find that Dr. Nundy has a wealth of knowledge and experience, and it really helped me clear up some of my thinking around the virtual and the distributed care. So I hope you'll find this conversation helpful as well, and I hope you'll sit back and enjoy this episode with Dr. Shantanu Nundy. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Shantanu, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, Nicholas. It's great to be on. I appreciate you making the time, and uh, as I, as I prep for the show, I just get the sense that you're a busy guy and, and uh, got a lot of responsibilities. So I appreciate you carving out an hour here. Yeah, absolutely. No busier than anyone else. My pleasure. Um, I wanted to start here and uh, talk a little bit about your background. And I'm curious to know uh, what led you into medicine. Yeah. Um, you know, I, a couple different things. It was not, it was not one thing, but you know, I was sick a lot as a kid. So I spent a lot of time in and out of the doctor's office. Uh, and I think that definitely left an impact on me. Um, uh, but the real formative experience for me was, um, I had a chance when I was in college, uh, my family runs a small boarding school for, for, for kids, uh, in this village in India. And I went to go teach English and, ended up just getting drawn into the students' poor health. They seemed, they seemed pretty sick to me as a 17-year-old and uh, ended up partnering with a local doctor and uh, building a school-based clinic for them. And that was kind of exhilarating. And so uh, that was definitely a key moment on the journey. Anything else you pulled from, from that experience other than uh, overall health of those students? Yeah, I mean, there's, I think there was a lot. I think the, the, the most remarkable part of it actually was, so, you know, I, I went to go teach English, the kids seemed really sick. And I said, this, we need to do something about this. And so very far away, there was a hospital. And I decided as a 17 year old, I was going to walk into this hospital, I'm going to barge into the first doctor's uh, office that I could and ask that doctor to go uh, to come with me to help these children. And, and that's what I did. I walked in this hospital, went right to the first door and I demanded from the first doctor there. I said, Hey, I have a bunch of sick kids. I need you to come and take care of them. And he said, I can't today, but I'll be there tomorrow. And this, this gentleman came the next day and he literally did physical exams on 120 kids. Oh, wow. He came back the next day, did another 120. We had about 250 odd girls at this boarding school of ours. And I was just blown away by that, you know, uh, that was nothing even close to his job. Uh, and he did it with the sense of service and, and that was really inspiring to me. Wow. Yeah. I can see how that would have a, a big impact on you. Um, where did that initiative come from? Did you get that from your, from your parents? Cause not every, you know, 17 year old is going to walk into a hospital and say, Hey, I, I've got a group of kids, of uh, girls that need some help. 
that's his stupidity right there. No, I, I think, uh, yeah, actually what was interesting was, um, so a lot of people in my family do development work, um, work at the World Bank, start nonprofits. And so that's kind of how I grew up, I guess. Um, but actually when I got to my, uh, my family school, there was two other uh, people that, uh, you know, were I think in their 20s or 30s who had come to, to sort of do additional projects. So one guy, he created a, believe it or not, this little village in, in rural, rural India, he created a pizzeria uh, as a way to get these women to sort of, you know, learn entrepreneurship and have a small business. And then they could, you know, they could be able to, uh, uh, to, to buy the essential things that they needed. He wanted to give them like vocational skills. And yeah, I was really, uh, you know, I think I was looking at them while I was there and saying, wow, like what gave these guys the courage to do that? Um, or the audacity maybe. And, and so I think that that pushed me along for sure in that moment, you know, to say kind of like, why not? You know, I think a lot of us, we live sort of in the boxes, I guess. And you kind of come into an environment, you're like, well, I guess that's how it is. And I guess we'll just do this thing and I'll just be a part of this thing. And I think their mentality was very much like, let's tear it down and rebuild something. And I kind of got caught by that bug. That's very interesting. I appreciate, appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit and uh, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about uh, or we can now about the human diagnosis project. But uh, I saw where you wrote there was two gentlemen there and, you, and you, you wrote this phrase. They pushed you to dream bigger in your work. And I don't know, I was just kind of struck by that. And I was curious how they did that. What did that look like? Yeah, so the, well, I mean, just right from the name, the Human Diagnosis Project, right? So, you know, really taking off a playbook off of the Human Genome Project, I mean, that itself was, was audacious, right? So these two folks, one of them was a, was a long-term friend of mine. Uh, you know, uh, I think that, you know, I think in some respects, right, inspired by what was happening in Silicon Valley, right? You have, you know, these big, big companies coming up, taking down, you know, the, the taxi industry or changing the way that we, you know, uh, we go on vacation. And, and I think that was inspiring, but I think what was really missing for them was that social mission, right? And typically when you hear about, you know, nonprofits or sort of social things, it tends to be hyper-local. It tends to not be thinking big, big scale, and so I think it was that combination of the two, right? Um, and I think part of it for me at least, and this gets lost a little bit, I think scale, you know, a lot of people think of scale as a business imperative, which it is, but it's actually for me an equity imperative, right? Like if you do something amazing and only 10 people have it or hundred people or a thousand people or a million people, What's interesting is that you've made those people better off, but you've actually widened the disparity between those people and everybody else. And so I think until you really can solve problems at their, at their scale, you're really creating sort of local pockets of health inequity. And so I think that was really inspiring for me to say, are we solving the root, root cause? So let, let me give you an example for something much more practical, right? So. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges we have in this country is I think we're very, very well of after the pandemic is mental health, right? We have a lot of people dealing with mental health challenges in this country. And if you look at most of the solutions, most of the solutions are some version of, hey, let's just get you to a therapist sooner, faster, 
more virtually better. And that's an interesting solution, but it doesn't scale because we know that part of the problem is there's not enough therapists. So if there's not enough therapists, every company that's out there just saying, okay, we're gonna now give you a therapist is in some way, they're making the lives of those people better, but in some level, there's this zero sum game. You're taking therapists away from somebody else, right? Presumably, I mean, you can make it, instead of a 10 minute visit, you can make it an eight minute visit. Instead of an hour of downtime, you can make it 30 minutes of downtime, right? Instead of 10 sessions, you can make it five sessions. There's some scale there, but at some point you're hitting a wall, right? Yeah, that makes and sense. so to, to me, I think a lot about that is how are you gonna solve the problem at, at the depth of it so that you're truly creating something that can scale so that you're you know, improving health equity along the way and not actually exacerbating it like a lot of people are. They don't think of it, what they're doing is that, but they actually inadvertently are in many cases. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially the point you made about sometimes those more localized solutions actually expand that gap. Um, any other examples that come to mind? Um, you know, you mentioned mental health, but any other examples of things that we've not necessarily maybe figure out how to scale or we need to give more thought to that? I mean, it's pretty much anything, exactly. honestly, on some level, right? I mean, primary care is another one of those things, right? One of the really hot spaces, as you know, right now is primary care, right? You're seeing companies go public providing primary care like Oak Street. You're seeing lots of uh, telemedicine companies adding primary care to what they do. Um, at some point, there's just not enough primary care physicians. Um, and a lot of the solutions, what they're doing, like if you take concierge medicine, right? What they're doing is they're actually making the doctors have less patients. So the typical primary care doctor will take care of 2000 patients. They're saying, well, you'll only be one of 500. You'll be one of 300. You'll be one of 200. I'll be your personal doctor. I'll come to the hospital and I'll hold your hand through everything. That's fine. But again, there's just not enough. And so the more you sort of, you know, make, make that Cadillac service for those small people, you're creating a widening and widening gap for everybody else. Right. So there's a ton of examples of that right now. Again, solving health equity isn't everyone's problem to solve on some level, right? I mean, it's if you got 200 patients, you just want to do the best thing for them, or you have 500 employees and you're some boutique investment bank. But at some point, you know, if, if you really care about the problem, or if you're a policymaker who's, I think, charged with solving that problem, I think you have to think about that. And I think a lot of times we're just kind of following each other like lemmings. We're not really thinking, wait a second, I'm saying I care about health equity here, but I'm pushing this solution here that's actually widening it. Am I, do I really need to step back and think about right. the approach that we're taking? That makes me think about, I was uh, doing some reading recently and it was brought to my attention, um, a place like Africa. And you know, we think about United States and we may have a shortage of primary care doctors, but then you get into a place like that. And I was just blown away by the, you know, the ratio of physicians versus, uh, you know, citizens. And, and then when you get into something like mental health, it, the radius of how far my therapist is even grows farther. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about that into, and, and my initial thought was, well, you know, virtual care can help that, you know, they can get access to doctors in other places. But when I think about what you're saying now, um, if there's already a shortage, shortage in these other countries, and then I start adding more and more patients from other countries, there's still Correct. a shortage. Correct. Right. Correct. And there's not a lot of doctors running around with a lot of free time on their hands, right? right. So it's not like there's some massive mismatch of supply demand that you're solving for. And that's right. 
And that's right. And I think that's, that's where the in innovation imperative to me comes from, right? Or if you go to like the ideas of Craig Christensen and disruptive innovation, a lot of people say the word disruptive, they actually forget where that comes from. Mm -hmm. He defined it very, very precisely around an innovation that just has a dramatically lower cost point, mm -hmm. right? Than what, what other people do. And you're seeing that in Africa. So I had a chance, you know, before I came to the team here at Accolade, I was working at the World Bank. Um, and I was supposed to be helping, but I actually learned more than I helped probably. <laughs> and one of the models I learned a lot from was these community health workers. And a community health worker, for folks who don't know, it's incredible. It's someone who, you know, in these villages in Africa, they often have less than an eighth grade education. Uh, they are largely women who are entrusted by their communities. They're actually, you know, their village leader will sort of elect them and say, hey, you are now our community health worker. And what that means is they now become their first line of defense for any health issue. And they get training, they get training, they get access to a mobile phone that helps them with diagnostic protocols. They have a backpack full of medications. And in fact, some, some things I don't even have in my own clinic, believe it or not. Um, and then they sort of bike around from, from hut to hut providing preventive stuff. So for example, if you have a household that doesn't have a functioning um, uh, uh, you know, latrine and, and uh, uh, sewage disposal, they can help bring those services to you. They take care of sick kids under five. They, they, they examine women who are pregnant. That's a solution that can scale, right? Um, and there's many other solutions like that. I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be that extreme. I mean, even in the United States, we have this notion that every person has to have a primary care physician. And I question if that's really true. Like maybe if you're in college, you're a college student, maybe what you need is a mental health counselor. Maybe that's your first line, you know, except if you have a chronic disease, which, you know, some college kids have asthma or something else, that's fine. But for the vast majority, do they really need that? You know, and then there's the other element of, if you go to a lot of our inner cities or rural communities, it's physicians aren't necessarily that trusted. Not only are they not available, they're not necessarily trusted. So maybe the first line for them should be someone who's more representative of who they are, maybe somebody in the community, like a community health worker, right? So it's those kinds of things, but I think oftentimes, I think in the policy community, but oftentimes now as well in sort of the healthcare industry, we get locked in to these notions, right? And it's like, oh, it has to be a physician. Um, and I don't know if that's true, and I don't know if that scales, um, and then we're innovating at the margins instead of really innovating the core model and saying, wow, well, what would it look like if every kid in college had a mental health counselor as, as their first person? Yeah. Would that serve their need better? And then that frees up a bunch of primary care physicians to then be able to serve folks who have chronic conditions, right? But we oftentimes don't ask those questions because we sort of take a lot of things as given that I think we shouldn't. Right. Let's transition to your book. What motivated you to, to write the book, Care After COVID? Yeah, the motivation, I was definitely not planning on writing a book. The motivation actually was very early in the pandemic um, when, if you remember, we were all obsessed with testing, 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 right? The first month or two, like, how can I get a test? Where is there a test? Why is there not enough tests? Um, I had a really simple idea. Um, the idea was, why can't people test themselves at home? You know, at that point, drive-through testing was starting to pick up, which is, I think, a great innovation. But I said, well, not everyone has a car. Not everyone lives in an area where there's enough density to warrant having that. 
plus in a drive-through test, you're going to need to have a nurse or a healthcare professional there. Um, and we anticipated that we'd have a shortage. And so the simple idea was, well, why, why can't we just have people test themselves in their own homes? We seem to do everything from home these days, from watching movies to, to getting our deliveries. And it seemed like to me, like almost like a uniquely American solution to the problem of access. Um, and so anyways, you know, I had actually never written an op-ed before, but wrote an op-ed and it went viral. Like literally within a month, I was in Rolling Stone magazine, uh, not for anything special other than I think people were really looking for solutions to this urgent problem. And, and so, so on and so forth, there was a lot of interest in it, but I actually started working with policymakers and I couldn't get across the line. And that was the moment where I kind of said, wow, you know, now that I've been sort of, you know, spend my career trying to change healthcare on some level, I've learned some things, but if I don't actually take an effort to sort of put a vision out there and to advocate for change, you know, it's not going to happen. And so I sort of, it was very introspective, you know, and I sort of decided that, Hey, um, I need to at least try to, uh, to get out there with some of these ideas. Um, it's hard not to want to, when you see your whole country kind of turn sideways. And, and that was really the motivation. You mentioned the at-home testing. What ultimately do you feel it was that kept you guys from getting that over the, over the goal line? What was the, the, the hesitation there? Yeah. Well, we did now clearly, Yeah, uh, right. you know, you can, uh, you can walk in any CVS or Walgreens and for 14 bucks, get a test and test yourself on your kitchen counter. Um, yeah, there was, there was really three veins of, of, of pushback. I think one was people saying, well, patients can't figure out how to test themselves. Right. And I think that's the very sort of antiquated paternalistic notion. I mean, it's not that hard. You're sticking a Q-tip in your nose. Right. But it's, I don't know. It's, a, it's that sense like, like, well, we can't trust patients to figure that out. Um, another concern is people said, well, they're going to test themselves too much. They're going to over test. Right. And I was like, I don't think people enjoy, you know, <laughs> testing themselves for COVID. Like, I don't know if that's true. I think if someone's testing themselves, they're worried about something and there's some validity to that. Um, and, uh, and then the last was, was that, you know, how can they interpret the result of the test, right? Which again, it's kind of funny on some levels, like, well, if it's positive, it's positive, it's negative, it's negative. But, you know, it does depend a little bit on like what your risk is and things like that. But I was like, even in a clinic, when you come see me, I don't necessarily spend a lot of time explaining this stuff to you. So it, it was just a, some version of a lot of sort of paternalistic antiquated thoughts. Um, and it was serious. I mean, to, to, I don't know, you, this was a small net story in the larger story, but literally a bunch of companies were about to, to launch at-home testing to the point where the FDA had to come out and say, at-home testing is not authorized which is very unusual. They typically say what is authorized or approved. They don't typically say what's not. And that's how bad it got. Um, and of course, about a month later, they reversed course. And But it had already done the damage and we missed a huge window, I think, to be able to, to scale up testing in a way that I think would have been widely accessible. Right. So I'm, I'm definitely going to encourage people to, to go and read your, read your book and I'll include a, you know, a note to it. Uh, I found this to be a great read. And... Um, I wanted to ask you, like, what are the, the biggest takeaways that you hope readers walk away with 
Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it depends on on the reader to some degree, but I, I think I think the first overarching across all readers is sort of a clear-eyed view of how healthcare should work. You know, what's what's interesting is if you ask most people in this country, as most health policy experts, what's our vision for healthcare? Most of the answers you get are really high level. They'll say, well, our vision is, you know, value-based care, or our vision is universal health care, or vision is Medicare for all, or whatever it is. And I don't think for a lot of people that means anything. And so what this book will start to do is it'll start to show you, hey, when you're sick on a Saturday night or your child's sick on a Saturday night, here's how healthcare should work. Um, and I think that that, I think, is something that I hope everyone has this understanding. And I hope part of what they see with a lot of the examples in the book is this isn't some sci-fi 2050, you know, replicator or whatever view of the world. It's these are things that we actually by and large have today. It's just that they're disconnected, not available to most people. So that's sort of the, the mega message for everybody, I think. Um, and then I think within that, it depends on the stakeholder, but I, I try to get fairly prescriptive on, hey, if you can agree on this vision, here's what you need to do. Uh, and I hope people take that away because this is meant to be practical. It's meant to be, you know, look at what happened to our country the past 18 months, like you, you have a role in, in ensuring that, that this never happens again and, and that we're better equipped to manage chronic disease and preventive health. Uh, it's really meant to be practical. I think that's a great word for it. I found it to be very practical. I was going through and as we discussed uh, before we went live, um, I love how you broke down the chapters where at the end of each chapter, uh, based on you know which stakeholder it was, three or four or five bullet points of these are the things that you should be thinking about or ways that you could possibly help. And um, so I found it really easy to, to pull a few of those and throw it in a journal or a notebook. And, you know, when you have some time to think about those, those things. So that's great. Um, and you give some great personal examples too. Um, those were kind of open for me as well. I think you, you talked a little bit about your experience uh, with that at home, uh, check up for some life insurance. And then I believe one of your daughters got sick. And so uh, it, I appreciated those personal stories too, where you, where you were saying, Hey, my wife and I were in this situation and we kind of struggled to know what to do as well. And we had mm -hmm. to pull some resources to, to help our daughter who was sick. So. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. No, healthcare is deeply personal. It's so personal. And, uh, and so, yeah, thank you for saying that. And I, and I, I feel like, again, it goes back to if you ask most people what's the problem with healthcare, they'll they'll start to go off into, well, it's expensive and there's a lot of waste and there's a lot of this, right? But it always surprises me how we don't get to the core of it because it's so core for so many of us, right? Like everybody has these stories, right? Driving around in the parking lot looking for a doctor, right? Or looking for a parking spot to see your doctor. I mean, everyone has those, but I don't know why, but we tend to sort of use a lot of fancy terms um, and obfuscate, I think, the core challenges that people face. And so that's part of what I try to do whenever I talk about the work. That's a great point. So this new model that you, you describe in your book, um, you use three terms to, to describe it. And I was hoping you could maybe d define those um, for sure. us. Um, but this new model you describe is distributed, digital, and decentralized care, which I think is really fascinating. 
Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. Yeah, it's I think I think of it more of a framework than a model. But, uh, you know, so distributed is the idea that, you know, healthcare should start closer to home, right? That if you think about it, healthcare today starts the moment you walk into a clinic, your moment you walk into a hospital, but our health, right, goes with us everywhere we go. And that there's this huge chasm between sort of what we experience at home and the care that we get in those in those facilities. And so I think wherever possible, we need to distribute, we need to take a lot of those resources that are just stuck in a clinic or a hospital somewhere and push them out. And so whether that's virtual, whether that's home-based care, whether that's community-based care in churches or barbershops, we need to push that out. Um, digitally enabled um, is really the idea that care, healthcare is fundamentally about people, it's about relationships. And that the most important role for digital, I think, is actually to enable those relationships, right? So like the example I give of, you know, I have a relationship with my wife and I use technology to then, you know, we have shorter bursts of communication text messages that sort of help support and augment our relationship. It's, it's not even close to being a replacement for that. And so I think healthcare needs to really become digitally enabled. And the third is decentralized, which is the most sort of hard to understand, but decentralized is right now, so much of the decision-making and power is concentrated, you know, at a health insurance company somewhere or in the government somewhere. And what it's trying to say is those resources and that responsibility should be, should be much more squarely in front of the doctor and the care team and the patient. Um, because they really understand what the problem is and they can, there, there's where the solutions are going to you know, be made. I appreciate you defining those. And I want to ask about the home-based care piece because mm-hmm. that's, that's not a new concept for us. I mean, I think we all have the image of the country doctor, you know, maybe with the black bag that kind of made his rounds to the, to the citizens of the town. Um, but in your own studying, like what caused that, that shift away from more home-based care to, but I'll say like more centralized or kind of brick and mortar where you're actually going to a clinic, you're going to a doctor's office. Yeah. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. It's a throwback, right? To how healthcare used to be Marcus Welby and and all those ideas. Um, As to why it shifted away, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert in that subject, but I imagine it's a couple of different things, right? One is sort of the, the pace of technological change, right? That as you needed x-ray machines and laboratory tasks and all these sorts of things, to be able to co-locate those in one place, right? Across a fixed asset, bring people in there. And I think that um, is, is probably a significant component of it sort of on the cost side. Mm-hmm. I think the other is, is payment models, which drive a lot of healthcare, right? Um, and that even today, so much of, you know, you can only get paid if it's in a clinic or hospital environment, uh, even if you do the same things at home. And then regulation, right? Um, like a great example is in most states, my same nurse that can draw your blood if you come see me in clinic because she comes to your house, she can't draw your blood unless I'm there. Um, so there's there's layers of things behind it, but I think those are probably some of the big driving forces. And then I think culturally, I think too, maybe I'll add is paternalism, right? That so much of healthcare is oriented around the doctor or the provider, right? So you come to me when you're sick, <laughs> please take, you know, please come in to, to, to me, wait in a place called the waiting room and then I'll see you when I can. Um, I think there was a deep cultural component as well. The one I had thought of was the technology piece. And as more and more equipment was, was required, 
I thought about it would be really tough to throw that in your car and bring that totally. around to all your patients. Um, totally. And, and that's, and that's part of what's driving the, the potential for it to flip. Right. I mean, like, look at, I mean, look at this piece of technology that I'm communicating with you on right now. Yeah. Right. I mean, before it had to be this thing that was the size of a room, then you had to go and see it on a movie projector. Now, like you can get like pretty high quality, you know, streaming movies from your own home. I think a lot of those technologies in healthcare have similarly, you know, been miniaturized or um, commoditized or connected. And so it, maybe it w- wasn't possible in some ways, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, but now, um, again, look at the COVID test no further, right? If you think about PCR technology and antigen technology, I mean, that's a very complicated piece of technology. But today, right, you can swab yourself at home and mail it in and someone will run a PCR or you can do a rapid antigen test in your own home. So I think, you know, technology has you know, sort of maybe enabled it 20 years ago to shift into the clinic. Now, a different sense of technology makes it possible to be able to, to distribute it. Right. I mean, one of the, one simple example I like to give people that kind of help them understand is like, imagine if, if to test yourself for pregnancy, women had to go to a clinic and see a doctor, right? Just, just think about that. What would happen? What would happen is probably a lot of women would find out much later that they were pregnant. Right. Um, and think about all the effects that would have in terms of prenatal vitamins and getting regular checks. Right. So it's, and everyone sort of gets that example. And then when I tell them, well, that's why we need to distribute care into people's homes, then they're like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Because I don't think people fully understand the access issues that are being created. Like even today, you know, you as someone with diabetes, you can, you can test your blood sugar at home, but you can't technically like test yourself for diabetes if you don't know if you have it. And then we always wonder, well, why is it that so many millions of Americans don't know they have diabetes and they get diagnosed seven to 10 years into their condition? Well, <laughs> you should be able to walk in any pharmacy or order online and get yourself a test and test yourself at home and have that covered by your health insurance. If we did that, so many of those people who are probably sitting at home wondering, man, my grandmother had diabetes, my mom had diabetes, like maybe I have it. They could just test themselves and be like, oh, shoot, I do. And then I can go, you know, go fix it. Um, HIV is the same thing. I mean, there's so many uh, colon cancer screening. You can screen yourself for colon cancer at home. Every year we sit around and we say, oh, my God, there's so many millions of people who aren't getting screened and people get, you know, find out late. Well, it's like, you know what I'm saying? We have to start to distribute care to where people are. We got to truly meet them where they are. And if we don't, we can't keep getting surprised that, you know, these things get found late. Um, yes, that means that someone might test themselves and find out they have diabetes in their own home and they don't have a doctor in front of them or a nurse to help explain it to them. But if I were to balance the risk of you never finding out you have diabetes or you find out, but you find out maybe without a medical professional's in a medical professional's care, like I would take the second one any day of the week. Right. One of the things that you suggested for health plans, and I think probably a lot of us take for granted is that we have access to high-speed internet. We have access to tablets and, and computers and phones. And so something like virtual care, we have access to that. But for many, they may not have access to those things. And, and you made the suggestion that health plans help provide resources so that their um, you know, members can have uh, greater digital access and also literacy. And I was curious, like, do you have any examples of where that's been implemented or any good case studies of, of how that looks and how a health plan can do that? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So 
first of all, I think what you're referring to is that you know, when you talk about the digital divide, there's really three, three types. There's broadband, there's device, and there's literacy, right? Because you need to have all three. Um, and any one of those things can be a barrier. And that's a big deal. Like I think as virtual care becomes synonymous with care, I think the, the digital divide will, will equal sort of, you know, the health divide. And so it's going to be really important to address those root causes. So in terms of examples, there are examples on the device and literacy side, right? I don't know any examples of broadband because broadband, as you know, you know, generally, you know, requires more of a society or policy-based approach, but there's definitely uh, health systems who have made those investments. So a good example is um, uh, Long, Island, Long Island Jewish Hospital System in, in New York uh, that were taking care of a lot of older folks. Um, they actually sent uh, a medical assistant out to people's homes, gave them a like you know an iPad-like device, actually sat there with them for the first you know uh, televisit they did with their doctors and then assess whether or not they needed more support. Um, and so they found that a lot of these folks were able to, I mean, these technologies are simple. Sometimes there's more of a mental barrier than there's a physical barrier, but, and so once they were able to give them that kind of in-home support within, you know, one, two, three sessions, they were able to sort of fly on their own and be able to use it. Um, I had the same experience with text messaging. So when you talk about digital enablement, I did some work on the South side of Chicago when I lived there um, where we were sending people text-based reminders, take your medications, check your feet, you know, make sure you're eating the right foods. And when we enrolled people, we were surprised that there was a fair number of people over 60 who didn't know how to text message. Mm. And what was really funny is at the end of the pilot, uh, about a month later, when we asked people, you know, what'd you like most about this pilot? A bunch of them said, well, you, now I can text with my grandkids. Uh-huh. You know, and so that was like, you know, for them, like a positive uh, benefit of being in the study besides their better diabetes. So, um, you know, I think that's what's powerful about these technologies is that they really are intuitive and pretty simple. It's just sometimes people kind of get themselves in a space where they're like, well, I can't use that. And I don't know how to do that. And they use them like, wait a second, I can use this. Uh, so that's on the literacy side. Obviously, some people don't have devices. I think the broadband is the one that we're really going to need to invest in policy solutions for. And so I think for that, the best we can do as businesses is really advocate for that. Um, it's not something as easy for us to solve ourselves. Yeah. It's, it's such a shift in mindset because even as you're saying that, like, I just don't think like companies would necessarily say, all right, how do I help my employees have access to, to better health care? Well, maybe it's as simple as I buy them an iPad and mm -hmm. Maybe I make it cellular internet based and I incur that cost and that would give them, and maybe I preload, download our telemedicine apps and that kind of stuff. And yeah. that could give some of the resources to take advantage of some of these things. So, but I, I just don't think we're, we're not conditioned to think that way. It just, Correct. Correct. You're right. We're not, you know, I think I remember that back in the day, I got my a Blackberry from a place I was working, right? So it was considered like you give it to the very elite people, you give them a phone, you give them you know, uh, you pay for their cell phone bill. So they have a mechanism, but you're right. It's, it's a new mentality. Um, I think now is the right time though. People are asking a lot about health equity. Um, and I think rather than thinking about it in sort of a superficial way, a lot of them are asking me, they're like, we know this has to do with 
you know, the social determinants of health and the structural barriers and like, that's a structural barrier. <laughs> you know, so I think we're, we're now talking about the right language. I think what's missing is ex like examples, like you're pushing me on of like, okay, how do we actually do this? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I think it, hopefully we're going to start to see a lot more of those examples being talked about because I, I'm seeing a hungriness for it now. Yeah. You know? And that's just, so, that's just so practical. So, all right, we're, uh, we're running up on our time here. I wanted to ask real quick about, uh, accolade and I'll, I'll encourage people to check out what you guys are building there can you can you just real quickly like articulate um you know why is engaging people before those health care decisions are made so important and like when is that engagement typically happen with a patient yeah yeah well i mean it's the classic announce of prevention is worth a pound of cure but you know i think when it comes to the health insurance sort of industry and population health industry, you know, the typical way that they approach it is they say, okay, there's a hundred people. Let's use data to find out who are the five red people. And then when, when we find those five red people, let's call them out of the blue and say, I'm your new best friend. And I'm going to help you manage whatever it is that you have. I mean, that's pretty much that's summarizing like 50 years of the healthcare industry in like one sentence, that's kind of how they do it. And the reason why that doesn't work. Well, there's a couple. One is that you're only touching 5% of the population. And so you're hoping to save money or improve health outcomes on hundred people just by helping five. That's pretty hard. Number two is by the time that you're already red, like the bigger thing to do is keep you from getting red. Right. Um, and three is the engagement point. If you call someone out of the blue and say, Hey, I'm from XYZ insurance company. I want to help you. People are like, well, who are you? Where have you been? <laughs> um, and so Accolade, you know, and I can't take any credit for this, but Accolade's whole model, which was created, you know, 12 years ago or so, was let's completely flip that on its head. Let's have a model that helps everybody with any health and benefits question. It's sort of ask Accolade. And what we will do by doing that is, A, you get people upstream. They'll call you. They'll say, well, you know, uh, Hey, I, I need help. I'm about to get an MRI. Okay, well, why are you getting an MRI? Uh, because I broke my arm. Well, why did you break your arm? Oh, because I got drunk again. Well, <laughs> tell me about that, right? So, and so that was their whole idea. And then the other part of it is if you help people with small things like, well, I lost my ID card, or is this a bill? Or do I need to pay this? Right. If you help people with those small things, then when you call them later on, when they, when they, when you think that they need help. They'll remember you. You'll have a relationship. They'll trust you. And so I sometimes joke that accolades like the primary care approach to population health, right? It's, hey, come on in for anything. Let's, you know, figure out what you need and kind of move you forward. And that was really, really different. And so, yeah, right. One of the results is the engagement is totally different. Um, but to me, it's really about the fact that you're building trusting relationships and you're finding way more clinical opportunities earlier in people's journeys. That's a, that's a powerful model. Well, Shantanu, you've been so generous with your time. I really have enjoyed the conversation and, uh, have learned a lot here. I often say with, with these, I'll, this, this is definitely one I'll go back and, and listen to again. And, uh, I think you highlighted and shared some really good examples and some practical, uh, solutions that we could all, all think about. So. Yeah, well, thanks so much. Thanks for bringing this education out to folks. I think it's, uh, it's a great mission you have.
Well, that does it for this episode. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you subscribed uh, and tuned into future episodes. I'll be posting those on my LinkedIn page and also my Twitter page, both at Nicholas Krim. And uh, if you ever have any suggestions on how the pro the show could be improved or maybe potential guests, you can email me at email at Nicholas, N-I-C-K-O-L-A-S-C dot com. Well, thanks. And until next time, have a great day.